to the Introduction to Clinical Research podcast. My name is Debbie. I use she, her pronouns. I work in clinical research and I have decided to explain it to my friend Elise. Say hello, Elise. Hello, Elise. My name is Elise. My pronouns are she, her, hers. It still makes me giggle every time. <laughs> We're stuck with this joke forever. Our listeners mm-hmm. hopefully giggle too. If I giggle... Therefore, everybody giggles because mm-hmm. that's how it works. So Somebody else good. is giggling at it at any rate. And there's for every person who giggles at it, there's probably at least two who groan. Mm. But these are this, that's almost worth it. Yeah, this is the beauty of dad jokes. Anyway, hi, my name is Elise. My <laughs> pronouns are she, her, hers. Um, I don't work in clinical research, so I'm here to learn. Awesome. Thank you. We're here to pull the curtain back on medical research. So hopefully you feel more informed and you're able to trust the outcomes or at least understand the outcomes of research. There's a lot we can discuss, so we're going to take it bit by bit. And today we're talking about some of the historical cases that have got us to the research framework we have today. Or, as the title of our episode is in our notes, historical Mm -hmm. shit. Yeah. Yeah, I was I was trying to be more PG, but I really think that sums it up because it is yeah shit. Uh, so generally, I think I need to give everyone a heads up, a uh, content warning. We are going to be talking about some of the tragedies in clinical trials that will include um, medical outcomes, death, including deaths of children, um, fetal development. So that's babies developing in the womb, torture unethical conduct medical racism racism in general so just a a whole mixed bag of really terrible stuff if that doesn't sound like something you want to listen to that's completely fine feel free to give this one a miss okay so now that that's out of the way we are going to be talking about specific examples what i like to think of as case studies so in in my past life before i did the job that i currently do i used to be a trainer and this is one of the topics that i trained on Every new person that came through the door of the company that I worked at received um, good clinical practice training. And part of that training included a look at the history of research to really kind of set in frame to look at what went wrong in the past and what we've learned from it. I personally believe it's extremely important um, to look at history to understand why we are where we are. I'm not a historian, I'm a scientist, but I want to make sure that we're not making the same mistakes tomorrow that we made yesterday so we're going to look at a few of them a few of the tragic um mistakes or um things that have been done that weren't mistakes they were very deliberate choices but they were terrible um we're going to look at a few examples but just a a heads up this is going to be two episodes we think because unfortunately when you're talking about historical shit it turns out there's quite a lot of it um so uh, (laughs) thousands and thousands of years of it Yeah, human beings, uh, sometimes not great to each other. And we're not going to cover all of it, right? We're, we're really only looking at the last 100 years, 2023. So huh, let's let's get into it. And I, and I wanted to ask Elise, why do you think it's important that we talk about this? So I think you've already named probably one of the most um, important reasons, which is that, you know, we have to understand history. We have to look at history. Uh, in order to not repeat it. And there's a lot of things that we don't want to repeat from history. Um, I think also that um, helping, as someone who works in public health, we do frequently think about what we need to do to make sure that the programs that we put out and the um, campaigns and the way that we train people 
um, are culturally competent. And a big part of cultural competence in this case is being understanding of the ways that different people will respond to governments, researchers, clinical or experimental um, Mm -hmm. anything. (laughs) Uh, And some of that is shaped by history. Yeah, a lot of that is shaped by history, especially, I mean, everywhere but the U.S., right, we have a a particular history that I'm sure we'll be talking about in some part today. Um, That is still, you know, as we've, I think, referenced in the past on this podcast, like has a long arm, right? Um, Mm -hmm. And continues to impact yeah, it's the same everywhere, right? Like, you, you cannot escape uh, history. And I think it's naive naive to think you can um, because it, it, it sets so much of the context that we're in. And I think, I think often we get a little blinkered about... I think it's probably a very natural human response, right? Only wanting to remember the good things and not the bad things. But often you can learn as much, if not more, from the bad things than the good things. Yes. So I've got a whole bag of bad things for you, Elise. Oh, good. (laughs) I'm sorry. Buckle up. (laughs) Okay. Um, What we we are going to try and do, uh, though, today, as well as talking about these tragic things, is to think about what what happened to cause the thing. Um, Because behind each of these episodes, there is a reason or a cause. And determination of that cause, in, in my opinion, is absolutely necessary. Because if you look at a uh, random example, like a road traffic accident and and everybody's on the scene and Poirot turns up, <laughs> he's back again um, <laughs> no. to try and... Yeah, he's always here. He, he lives in my head. <laughs> um, uh, to, to, to try and like solve the case, right? He has to get back to, you know, did someone run a red light or did the red light, did the traffic lights all fail or, or what happened to cause all of these cars to drive into each other so tragedies in clinical trials the other thing that we've got to be careful of here Elise is getting the tone right because we're having a giggly fun time (laughs) we're going to be talking about some shit yes (sighs) we have to entertain the masses at least Elise based on the numbers the masses are not listening to this podcast 30 30 people listen to our first episode of which you and I are two well Twenty-eight people listen to our first episode. <laughs> You're not wrong. You're not wrong. <laughs> Jeeps. Okay. So tragedies in clinical trials are associated with a few different causes, and this is what I've picked out based on my experience and and kind of the examples that we're going to talk about. This probably isn't all of them. Um, individual or group kind of malpractice, fraud, or unethical behavior. That's number one. And also these are in no particular order. It's not like order of priority or uh, how frequent they occur. Uh, Number two and my random list is a lack of scientific rigour. And by that, I mean we didn't test something enough. So we didn't know that it was thumbs up or thumbs down. Um, Number three, everybody's favourite, prejudice and discrimination. So prejudice being um, like holding opinions about people or groups of people and discrimination is acting on those uh, beliefs to exclude or or treat people differently. Um, And number four, an almost unpredictable freak accident or result of human biology. And only the last one you kind of can't litigate against. Stuff happens sometimes that we can't predict. And so there always needs to be scope for that. 
there's always risk, right? That's why when we've talked endlessly about risk versus benefit, right? There's always going to be risk, but that doesn't mean you don't do anything because there might be an enormous benefit. Right. Okay. Each of the tragedies that we talk about have taught us, humanity, some lessons and often led to legislative changes. Um, and the examples that I talk about, they're international, um, but because of um, I'm based in the UK and I've worked predominantly in the quote-unquote Western world, so the examples that I pull from are predominantly in that part of the world. I am sure there are other examples from other countries, but m most of the examples that I've got are from kind of my sphere of experience. Um, so, for example, in episode six of the podcast, we met the elixir sulfonilamide tragedy in 1937, and that led directly to legislative change, the Food, Drug and Cosmetics Act in the USA in 1938. Yes, and and for all of us who uh, absolutely remember that episode um, and that story so clearly, could you just uh, remind some of the rough details? <laughs> That's such a nice way of, of asking, uh, basically saying, I don't remember that. Can you refresh my brains? Of course, gladly. <laughs> um, so this was the example of a like a sore throat medicine for to treat strep throat. And they took a tablet and they ground it up and they dissolved it in antifreeze. And um, yeah. unfortunately, some people died because, as it turns out, you shouldn't drink antifreeze. Yep. But they made it taste nice with a raspberry flavour, so... That's good. Comforting. That's so comforting. Mm. It's it's so weird when you're researching these things, like the weirdest facts get inserted, like the fact that it was raspberry flavoured. Like, okay, cool. <laughs> and now we know, know that. <laughs> and, and now we know that these people who died had raspberry flavoured mouths. Great. Ugh, terrible. Yeah, so before this tragedy in 1937, it wasn't required for a drug to be tested to ensure it... And like each of the ingredients that it's made from are safe. The drug company only needed to prove that it was pure. You could be selling pure poison <laughs> and that was allowed. It's a bit wild. Yeah. yeah. So uh, a lesson was learned from that. And unfortunately, it cost people's lives. But uh, but I suppose the, the silver lining on the, the cloud is that the lesson was learned. Okay. So, Elise. What are some examples of terrible research practice that you know of? Well, so a few things immediately spring to mind. I know uh, that during World War II, there was experimentation by the Nazis mm -hmm. on uh, prisoners of war and other um, people that they held. Um, that's one of those things where, like, uh, the number of stories that I've heard, I have no idea how many of them were true versus how many of them mm -hmm. were just, like, because so many things in our media world vilify and for, you know, well, okay, they don't need to be vilified, but, um, <laughs> use Nazis as villains, but invent details of what happened, right? Yes. So I have no idea the number of things that I've heard that's true and that's not yeah, well, we're gonna. That's one of the examples that we're going to talk about, and I think we are going to talk about some of the details. Um, and I think when you know the the truth of what happened, I don't think you need to embellish that. It's yeah. just foul. Okay, so we've got Nazi experimentation in World War Two. Any others? Yeah, the um, the um, harvesting of cells from Henrietta Lacks. That was 
Oh, yeah. Um, I know that there's... Pretty horrific. Mm-hmm. Pretty horrific. Uh, the Tuskegee study. Um, I know there's some that are more kind of in psychiatric research that get um, talked about, like the prison experiment and um, the shocking, the one that with the shocks. Oh, gosh, I know. It's like the behavior... Yeah, I forget what the name of the study is, but the point of it was that, like, people will follow authority telling you to shock someone despite hearing the person yelling for help or saying that's really painful. Um, And the psychological trauma on the people who were involved doing the shocking was uh, was quite bad versus it was just a recording of an actor yelling. So no one was actually receiving a shock, but the... Um, folks who were pushing the button didn't know that? No, uh, yes. Um, It was the um, obedience to authority. Yes. Commonly known as the Milgram experiment. That's it, Milgram. Um, Done at Yale. Yes. Yep. Great, great uh, forward-thinking institution. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, Mm -hmm. and I think with the Stanford prison experiment, that was similarly Mm -hmm. like uh, the study is widely rejected now as actual evidence of what humans will do in behavior or like how they will behave in those circumstances just because um, those clinical settings don't actually reflect um, what we've observed in non-clinical settings of human behavior but additionally uh, similarly to the Milgram experiment there were several people who reported like high levels of distress after the fact yes um, where the participants in the study were not properly cared for or perhaps the study shouldn't have never been done because of the harm to the participants um psychologically yeah absolutely absolutely all um i don't want to say great examples because they're all terrible examples but they're all terrible examples at least well done (laughs) thanks yeah um and a couple of them we're going to touch on today and i think honestly we've already set this out as two parts but maybe this is just going to be an enormous series because there are so multiples many things. yeah like yeah just the just the the few that we've named here like the, the few examples that we've set out here could be you know two hours of conversation so okay we'll just pick pick a few that we're going to look at um so the first the first example is the first one that you mentioned so the um experiments conducted by the nazis during world war ii particularly between 1942 and 1945 the um prisoners of concentration camps so um, what's good slash bad about this is that there were documents kept. So we know, based on the documentation from these concentration camps, that there were 15,754 documented victims of um, these medical experiments. Wow. We know that based on their own evidence. But the actual number of victims is likely to be much higher because maybe they destroyed some documents or, or such and such. Um, especially Jewish prisoners of war or, or prisoners of the concentration camps were subjected to really terrible experiments. So um, we're going to look at some of the, the details of that now. Um, and uh, as I said before, I don't think you need to embellish this. Um, some of the experiments were allegedly to assist in the survival of military personnel. So they did high altitude and freezing experiments to see what the human body could withstand. Um, and they also tested various methods of making seawater drinkable. Oof. Yep. 
Um, other experiments were aimed to develop and test drugs and treatment methods for injuries or illnesses, so like malaria or tuberculosis, but also taking wounds and introducing bacteria into them um, and exposure to mustard gas to see if they could find antidotes to make that a less effective weapon. There was also a program of mass sterilizations. So making it so that people couldn't have children and some truly gruesome twin experiments. So um, experiments conducted on, on babies or children who were twins doing different things to to each twin uh, and seeing how they would respond because they genetically identical twins would be the same. Right. Just a quick question that mm. I'm curious, the program of mass sterilization, was that in the interest of was that a, a like social campaign of trying to prevent the reproduction of people that they thought were inferior? Or was that actually part of the research in terms of like, how do we sterilize people? What are the effects of sterilization? No, it's the the former. They knew what they were doing. Okay. That's the thing the U.S. has done too, right? Up until like in the 1950s even, right? mm -hmm. Of sterilizing. And I think... I think more recently than that to certain patient populations. Yes. Yeah, yes. for sure. Um, so for the sure. first, what we're basically talking about is eugenics. Yes. Right. Taking certain parts of the populations mm -hmm. and saying you can't reproduce. Um, and in, in Hitler's Germany, the first the first forced sterilization law came in in 1933, which targeted yes. neuropsychiatric patients. So patients who had schizophrenia, epilepsy, bipolar, uh, alcoholism, or patients with some... Um, congenital abnormalities uh, and and continued from there. So they're basically trying to stop people that they think aren't suitable from reproducing. Yes. And I think there was there were similar programs in in the US for indigenous Americans and people of color. Right. There were um, for but also for people with disabilities, um, for all sorts of things. Basically, it was through the courts. They would be Jesus. Um, arrested on some uh mm. bullshit charge then the courts would declare them something mm -hmm. unfit in some way and the punishment of that thing or the result of that because it wasn't always framed as a punishment it was often framed as like medical intervention Oof. was sterilization yeah like this is for your own good <clears throat> yes and it was largely done um to people of color black and indigenous people of color but also just um, anyone that the state deemed unfit, which was almost always done based on race and decisions about, you know, people who were in poverty, which was also and continues to be largely um, racialized based on yeah, yeah based on race. And, yeah. So there's a lot there's of that said. prejudice and discrimination coming in again. Yeah. So just remember, um, if you ever feel <laughs> like Nazi Germany is a thing of the past and we've moved so, so far beyond that. Have we? Mm, yeah, but it's easy to vilify them, not us, isn't yes. it? Yeah, we're the heroes. We stopped World War II. Yeah. I think we need to get yeah. into the philosophy ravine shortly, at least. Oh, God. Yeah. I don't disagree with anything that you're saying, of course. Yeah, I know. Okay. So, truly horrendous things done. After the war, when we the heroes stopped World War II... Um, <laughs> I have to laugh, otherwise I'll cry. A series of trials were held to hold members of the Nazi party responsible for their multitude of war crimes, uh, known as the Nuremberg Trials. And these included 
what was called the doctor's trial, right? I, th- I think that's probably like a nickname for it, not the formal name, where the German right. physicians, because there were actual doctors involved in these experiments, um, where the German physicians responsible for conducting these unethical medical procedures on humans were tried. <clears throat> Several of the accused argued that their experiments differed little, i.e. were similar to, um, research done before the war and that there was no actual law that differentiated between legal and illegal experiments. So basically they argued that they could do whatever they like. Cool. Isn't why? Mm. Yeah, why? Why mm. would you think that? I mean, here's the thing. Like, I think you really have to believe that to make that your legal defense. I, I also think you really have to believe that to do some of the things they did to other human beings. That yeah. mental gymnastics, right? You can't believe yeah. I'm doing a bad thing and then continue to do it. Yeah. So you have to believe that what you're doing is fine and dandy. And I think also, we talked about the sterilization starting in 1933, right? If if you've been in a society that for 10 years has let you do X, doing X plus one, mm-hmm. maybe that's fine. Right. The, the, that slow stepping. Yeah, of... exactly. Right. Which is not an excuse because... Interestingly, historically, the Weimar Republic, which was Germany between 1919, after the end of the First World War, and before the Nazis took over in the 1930s, the Weimar Republic issued guidelines for new therapy and human experimentation. That was the title of it. Due to previous criticism of unethical human experimentation. These guidelines included informed consent, the concept that the well-being of the patient should be the goal of any study. It's called beneficence, but basically saying that the patient's care should be paramount, right? Mm -hmm. And the Nazis disregarded these guidelines when they took power, which emboldened some of these particular physicians. So I think for, uh, for the doctors to say, oh, no, it's fine, it's demonstrably not, because your own country had rules to say that it wasn't fine until the government threw those out. So in response to this, as part of the Nuremberg trials, the prosecution and the judges, with su- with support from expert medical advisors, created a 10-point code called the Nuremberg Code, named after the trials, right? The Nuremberg Code was the first internationally recognised code of ethics in medical research and stated, kind of for the first time, right, what is acceptable, how research should be done. Um, which Was there... Sorry, the way that you phrased that with by saying like it stated what is acceptable, mm-hmm. is that to suggest that in the past there were things that stated like, well, these are obviously not acceptable. Like you can't just kill people. Right. Yes, absolutely. And there, I mean, there were some like the, the Weimar Republic guidelines said, mm-hmm. you know, informed consent, you should do that. Yeah. Uh, okay. So it kind of goes both ways. But but really, the, the, the Nuremberg Code was kind of a bit of a game changer because it was internationally recognized. So by by those of us who fought the Nazis, obviously not everybody. Um, we kind of all sat around the table and went, yeah, this is this is a good thing for us to have f- for future reference, right? So that we don't end up in the same right. shithole. Yeah. So the 10 points include, but are not limited to, that um, voluntary informed consent is essential. So that means that the patient is informed about the study and they choose to participate voluntarily with an absence of like coercion or bribery or encouragement the patient truly chooses to participate and they are informed about what's going to happen to them 
Um, experiments should not inflict unnecessary suffering. So the, the well-being of the patient should be paramount. Um, subjects should be permitted to withdraw at any time. They can say, you know what, I'm done, I'm out, thank you very much. There's the door. And experiments should be stopped if the subject is in like immediate known danger. So if something changes and we know that continuing the research is is really going to put the subjects at a higher risk, nah, game over, stop the research. This was published in 1947. All of those principles sound very similar to the rules that we have in place today. Yes. So probably you're thinking we're now going to jump forwards to today and there will be nothing bad in between <laughs> those two dates, right? Yes, because humans are really good at not <laughs> causing problems for a span of 70 years. Definitely. As history will show, we've never done anything wrong our whole lives. That is demonstrably not true and I was being sarcastic. I, I know. I <laughs> just wanted to check. The next example is, again, one of the ones that you mentioned, Elise, and that some folks listening may have heard of, is the Tuskegee syphilis study. Yes. So this started... In 1932, we're, we're in the US this time rather than Europe. Good job. Welcome. Mm -hmm. uh, started in 1932 and ended... Guess when it ended, Elise? Oh, I don't want to know. Have a guess. Go on, have a guess. If you're asking me because you say, oh, it started in 1932, guess when mm -hmm. it ended? That must mean it's absurd. <laughs> <laughs> that must mean I wouldn't... I, because, like, a normal amount of time for a study to run, that's, like, you know... <laughs> maybe, maybe five years? Maybe five, maybe ten yeah. years. So I'm like, yeah. okay, well, then you must be telling me that this is going to be at least, like, 20, <laughs> 30, 40 years, Debbie? <laughs> so it started in 1932. In the middle of those of these dates, you'll note we had World War II and the Nuremberg Code was published in 1947. Fabulous. The study ended in 1972. I... I... That is 40, four zero years later. I'm tendering my but... resignation. <laughs> I do not accept. <laughs> Only after a public outcry. The research could still be going today if um, this story hadn't been published and people gone... Well, that's shit. Yeah. So the study was started in 1932 to observe the progression of syphilis. Yes. Okay. It was organised by the US Public Health Service and the Centers for Disease Control, the CDC. Yes. A plus, by the way, on pluralizing centers, most Americans will call it the Center for Disease Control, but it is the Centers for Disease Control. And there's another C, too. <laughs> do, do you, yeah yeah do you know the only reason i know that is because i singularized it once and one of my american colleagues went did you know it's actually centers <laughs> the only the only people who care are in public health <laughs> every everybody else like all the time i write centers for disease control and a hundred percent of my non-public health friends are like why did that's wrong and i'm like it's, it's not. singular surely it's not <laughs> you're it wrong it sounds like it should be <laughs> yeah i i often am Okay, uh, so I think it's important to remember who organised this study, particularly to, to kind of link back to the point that you were making about which population groups trust or not public health bodies. And why still to this, I mean, so much about the CDC and COVID was about people just not trusting that the CDC is telling the truth. So much of yeah, it. A huge valid. amount. 
was people being like, the CDC lies about things. The CDC covers shit mm. up. And it's like, well, historically, you're not wrong. Yeah. <laughs> mm-hmm. But also, COVID vaccines. Uh, yeah. Okay. Mm-hmm. Both things can be true, right? Yes. So <clears throat> 600 poor, so impoverished, um, African-American sharecroppers were recruited 399 with syphilis and 201 in a control group. So, you know, in terms of study design, we're comparing two groups. One's a control and one has the thing in question. This is where it all starts go, going downhill, right? They did this one thing right in study design, but mm-hmm. we're, we're off the cliff into Great. really terrible practice. Um, the men were deceived into participating. Uh, they were never informed of their diagnosis of syphilis. And they were told that the study would run for six months but they, rather than 40 years. They knew they had syphilis from the beginning to sort them into the groups, Debbie. Oh, oh, the 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 medical professionals running the study? Yeah. Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Okay. How you, 40 years. Uh, yes. Six months? But, okay, yeah. if mm-hmm. I, if it, if six months passed, mm-hmm. I would be like, we're done, right? And then they'd be like, no, we got to do another two months. And I'd be like, okay. But then if like eight years pass, I'd be like, yo, <laughs> what's happening here? So how? how? Yeah, I think basically they were told the initial plan was six months and then it kept getting extended. And probably like the things that were being quote unquote like done to these men, uh, it was like they go to the, they go to the doctor's office and report their like symptoms or whatever. But it wasn't like they had to go in and get treatment every every week or month. It was probably like quite low burden for them in terms of their visit schedule. So they were probably just never informed that the study was still going on. Maybe um, they weren't they weren't told they had syphilis. Right? They were told they were being treated for bad blood, and I think it was kind of sold as this really like altruistic thing, like oh we're helping you out, we're treating you for your bad blood. As if that's an actual diagnosis. Yeah, Elise is doing a real good, like, what face? I don't know what bad blood is. And this is the Taylor Swift song. Yeah, (laughs) jinx, jinx. Yeah, absolutely. Um, So, so, yeah, I don't know. I don't know. But I I mean, also, maybe in the the 1930s, right, the trust that people had for their doctors was a bit more uh, blind. No, blinded isn't the right word. Was a bit more blinkered than it is today so like you you would trust your medical health professional without kind of asking questions yeah this is a well-known and studied effect of of a change in how people approach medical advice especially since the advent of the internet is that prior Mm. to being able to like google your symptoms it was like the medical professional knows all and most people interacted with their doctor as if like their word is law and they did not need an explanation yeah, if you were they told didn't question take it. this pill you took the pill if you were told get extra sleep you mm-hmm. got extra sleep right um and now there's mm-hmm. a lot more like get a second opinion check it on google are you sure it's not xyz i want tests for this right more of that like patient mm-hmm. advocacy like self-advocacy <sighs> yeah and i think there's got to be a balance between the two right like i'm i'm in general <laughs> i trust science and i trust medical professionals and particularly like those people who obviously practice evidence-based medicine um i'm here for it yeah. but I, I i'm also happy to advocate for myself like w- w- when i went into no. the doctors after i had a surgery a couple of years ago and i said all right what, what do we need to do to stop this problem reoccurring and he said oh you can lose some weight and i went based on what evidence and oh, he went, yeah. oh it's just always healthy i'm like yep. oh yeah but is it because you know 
diets don't work in X percentage of cases and the number of people who develop eating disorders is approximately 25%. So what's more healthy? This random freak occurrence that I'm asking you, what can we do to prevent this? What's the preventative? What's the evidence-based mm-hmm. preventative measure? And all you're coming back with me is weight loss. Nah, mate. That's advocacy. Yep. I had I had exactly the same thought because what I was going to say is like doctors and psychologists, whoever, like hey, they, there's a certain threshold they have to pass for me before I'm like, OK, I, I'll, I'll trust you. And uh, my neurologist, mm. I had a similar experience when I was getting diagnosed with my my brain stuff. Um, and it was like one of the most commonly prescribed courses of treatment for my diagnosis is weight loss. And I was like, according to what and he actually like stepped through all of this like experimental like research that's still ongoing about these like things in your brain that have like particular fatty like Mm. cells that like more fat on them creates like a problem of like uh it can it can cause Mm -hmm, like mm -hmm. collapse of this of the i don't remember what they're called anymore this was years ago um and all this stuff and i was just like okay listen I still don't like, like, I would like you to, to give me solutions based, like, that have nothing to do with weight loss. And also, at least you had some facts to back shit up right on the... Back it up. Yeah, this guy had nothing. Like, can you can you imagine? So, yeah. like, the, the, in terms of, like, the percentage of people who, who manage to lose weight and keep keep weight off, like, the, the, yeah. depending on what yeah. data you look at, it varies, like, 80%, 95% fail, fail rates, right? Can you imagine any other treatment that a doctor prescribed yes. that we yep. would accept yep. an 80% fail yep. rate of? Not to mention, nah, like, there, yeah, overall, there is so little evidence about, like, how, yeah, and most of it is just, None. like... Mm-hmm. The impact of medical mm-hmm. fat phobia is enormous. Enormous. And read... Aubrey Gordon's books, listen to the Maintenance Phase podcast, because it's just it's ubiquitous. And like, actually, when you when you look at um, the real indicators of health, it's it's poverty and stress and diet, which is linked to poverty. So you want to solve problems, solve problems, don't make problems where they don't exist. Nailed it directly on the head. A plus for Debbie. We can all go home now. Let me get off my soapbox and get back in my... I love your soapbox. Uh, ...historic shitbox. Thank you. So, um, we've got this study that's running for 40 years uh, with these men who had syphilis, who didn't know that they were participating in research, didn't know that they had syphilis. And remember, right, that we got the Nuremberg Code, internationally recognised code of medical ethics, mm-hmm. that said voluntary consent, informed consent... Essential. Do you think that was it was like basically the justification was like they read the Nuremberg Code in you know and they went oh it's we're already yeah, running exactly. it it's doesn't been, apply this has been underway for over ten years we don't need to worry about this <sighs> grandfathered in yeah it, uh, potentially I don't know I've never spoken to any of the swear words that ran this study um, but like they they must have known um, because the Nuremberg Code also said that you should not inflict unnecessary suffering and the real Here's the real kicker for me. Do you know what an effective treatment for syphilis is, Elise? Um, antibiotics? Penicillin. Okay, yeah. Incredibly effective. Okay. Do you know when penicillin was discovered, Elise? Oh, God. No. When was penicillin discovered? Do you, do you think it was 1972? 
No, it was much earlier than that. Mm, correct. It was 1947. Oh. Not only was it... It wasn't necessarily discovered in 1947, but we knew it was an effective treatment for syphilis by 1947. Ah, so it was had been discovered and had been proven as a safe and effective treatment for syphilis. For syphilis, which these men had, and the treatment was never provided to any of them it was withheld from them which did inflict unnecessary oh, yeah. suffering you could have cured all of these men after 1947 if you'd wanted to but you didn't want to you wanted to see how syphilis progressed throughout their lifetimes and here's the real shit in this historic shit by the time the study was ended in 1972 of the original 399 patients who had syphilis 128 had died as a result of syphilis or its complications 40, 4-0 of the patient's wives were infected because, lest we forget, it's a sexually transmitted disease. And 19 children were born with congenital syphilis. So this is the other terrible thing about syphilis is it can be passed um, from parent to child. Cool. How good's that's that? The, that's shit. Yeah, isn't it? How, how did it go so long, Debbie? Why? Tell me, give me a reason. <laughs> Just give you a reason. Yeah. So the study was allowed to go on for so long, right, even after we had an effective treatment, even after we had the Nuremberg Code, because of institutionalised racism against black people. And ah. all of the patients were black. Yeah. Okay. Well, I could have seen that coming. Right. I should have seen that coming. Yeah. Sorry. But I, I, I also give think... Give me a reason. You're like, racism. It's like, oh, yeah, okay, that's that's it always. The elephant or... that's always in the room. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, there were rules in place already about informed consent and not causing harm but they were ignored like literally just ignored um and yeah, I, and you can get away with ignoring the rules when your patients are considered people who aren't worth exactly. having the rules applied to them and and that is how america treated its black population and many people would probably argue still in certain ways treats yeah. its its Absolutely. black population and i think not only is it terrible that it ran for 40 years, the only reason it stopped is because, and I think it was the Washington Post, but I, I don't know, a newspaper published a story that this study was going on. They somehow found out about it. I guess there must have been a whistleblower or something. And as a result, there was this outcry of people going, you what? Like in 1972, that is that is not an okay way to treat people. Um, and so at that point, you know, all the research apologists came out and were like oh but this is why we were doing it and blah 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 nobody cared the study was shut down yeah just like the nazis did at the trial right the nuremberg trial. right oh it's fine because whatever absolute garbage reason um i think it's important that we understand that the full context of, of like what happened and how truly terrible it was because i think the tuskegee syphilis study is is oft referenced right and you were obviously aware of it mm -hmm. but probably mm -hmm. not as aware of all of the absolute mess that it was no. and how long it ran for and how many people were affected and their wives and children as well um and this study this specific example and there are others that we're going to get to right this study is often cited as an important cause of distrust in medical science right in the centers mm -hmm. for disease control um the distrust of the u.s government among African Americans or the black population of the the USA, and frankly, understandably so. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 
So what we saw with the, the Nazis doing their experiments, right, that led directly to the Nuremberg Code. We've got elixisulfanilamide leading directly to legislation in the USA. And this study led directly to a an investigation and what's called the Belmont Report, which was published in 1979. So it took them a while to kind of get all their ducks in a row and get to the bottom of it. Um, and that established the Office for Human Research Protections, OHRP. It also led to the setup of something we've already talked about, institutional review boards, IRBs. Yes. Like the ethics committees in the US, mm-hmm. which review the studies to ensure that human subject protection, mm-hmm. right? To make sure that that factored into the study design and conduct is the, the paramount protection of the patients and this informed consent and what are the measures that we're going to use to check that the patients are doing well and to keep them safe and all of these things. That needs to be built into the study at the foundations of it, right? Um, and there are now bodies that are looking for that evidence because evidence history shows us because history shows us that if you don't then people are going to do garbage things yeah yeah um and i think what while we're on the topic of medical racism you mentioned as well henrietta Lacks. Mm-hmm. so I, I we're just gonna we're just gonna talk about that for a minute before sure. we wrap up because i think this is another story that just makes me want to spit so Henrietta Lacks was um, an African-American woman um, and the the reason that she is, is well known today is because um, she had some cells taken from her uh, without her consent and these cells have absolutely revolutionised science. Yes. So, um, she was... Uh, diagnosed with cervical cancer oh uh, sorry i should give you the the context of about when this is happening so she was born in 1920 and she died in 1951 so uh the events happened in 1951 okay that's the, that's the context of where we are so we're kind of in the middle of the tuskegee syphilis nonsense so she was diagnosed with cervical cancer and um was receiving treatment at john hopkins hospital in baltimore uh and she had some cells taken uh during that treatment like by a biopsy Mm -hmm. take some take some cells out she didn't know that that was happening she didn't consent to those cells being taken she didn't consent to those cells being used for future research all of those things if you were doing that research today would have to happen right so i've worked in uh, research studies where like even the taking of like an additional blood sample from a patient the patient is told every time like you're going to have a biopsy or you're going to have a tissue sample taken or you're going to have a blood sample uh, this is how it's going to happen and this is what, what we're going to do with those samples. You know, we're going to do a full blood count or whatever. And sometimes um, there'll be an optional extra sample for genotyping, i.e. we'll run that for DNA mm-hmm. because what you sometimes want to see is this particular group of patients responded really well. Is that because they have a particular gene mutation? And sometimes the answer is yes. So that means that you can target, all right, what we're going to do is we're going to genotype the patients and give them the treatment that works most effectively for them. That's a good logical idea, but the patient has to consent to those samples being taken today. Yeah. There's also in the UK a piece of law, and I'm sure there's similar in the US, called the Human Tissue Act, which means that you can't hold and keep tissue without consent. And there's been a number of terrible scandals throughout history where that has been done. So what happened to Henrietta Lacks, I say wouldn't happen today. If it did, there are laws in place and, and rules that mean that it shouldn't happen today. 
people are always going to be terrible. But uh, at the time, in 1951, I, I don't think anyone thought that this was abnormal, right? There were, there were, it, it was the practice. No consent was required to take these cells. No consent was required to culture the cells. That means grow more of them, right? Mm -hmm. And as they were growing more, um, they, they discovered that these particular cervical cancer cells were incredible in that they were kind of immortalized so they are one of the most important cell lines in history and they're called hela cells capital h little e capital l little a um so immortalized means it it reproduces indefinitely under specific conditions whereas uh, most often you take human cells out of a body and eventually they, they give up the ghost and they will die right. henrietta Lacks's cells incredible don't do that and so they they are used a lot in in medical research when you want to test something on a cell line, right? Um, uh, these HeLa cells is, is one of the uh, one of the, the tools that you may have in your in your arsenal. So um, they were used to help develop the polio vaccine. Mm -hmm. Um, they have been sent like around the globe to, to to help research in gene mapping, cancer, AIDS. Uh, they have been used to test human sensitivity to things like glue and cosmetics. There are almost 11,000 patents or patents, depending on your pronunciation, <laughs> involving these cells. Wow. That came from a woman with no knowledge, and no consent and... So this is 1951 when it happened. Her family didn't even know that this cell line existed until 1975. And as I'm sure you can imagine, those 11,000 plus patents, right? They're not all public health patents. There are people with commercial mm -hmm. purposes making money off the back of a human being's cells. Yep. Pretty gross. Just this, uh, just this year, there was... Um a settlement, right, in the family's lawsuit to um, receive money in compensation for Henrietta Lex's cells, I believe. I think so. I think, uh, yeah, I think so. I don't know the details on it. Yeah. Why don't we Google it? Yeah, let's Google it. I think I sent a link about it a long ass time ago. Well, like by that, I mean a couple months ago. Who's got the time to scroll up? <laughs> Not at least, me. frankly. Um, a historic settlement won by Henrietta Lacks's family. This is August 2023. Yeah, so not not too long ago. Uh, the family of Henrietta Lacks settled its lawsuit against biotechnology company Thermo Fisher over the claim that the company had been unjustly enriched by its use of her cells. Right. No financial payment or other terms were disclosed, but it has been hailed as setting a precedent. Okay. Good. Yeah. I'm glad. So, yes, uh, you're... Um, your thought there was correct. Her family have won a legal case. And it, I think it's it's something that is is maybe a little bit um in the news or in popular culture and um they've you know, they've been they've been moved it moves in um Congress to get to give Henrietta Lacks the Congressional Medal of Honor and put statues up about her and, and such. Um because where we are with, with certain medicine wouldn't wouldn't be where we are today without her. Yeah. Literally. Yeah. And again, the reason, the reason that that was done uh, to her, it was normal practice at the time, right? But her her treatment at the hands of those medical professionals was not not the same standard that I would have received as a white woman, right? Because she was a black woman. 
and I think the the lesson that we've learned there is, is as I as I mentioned in the middle of the story, right? The the rules that we have in place now for what can and cannot be done with um, tissue, cells, samples. Yeah. What happened in 1951 could not happen today. Yeah. In that you couldn't you couldn't get a patent for something without proving that you obtained it through legal, ethical, appropriate means. You could maybe do the thing, and you could maybe get away with that for a little while. Um, but you couldn't you couldn't financially enrich yourself to the same way yeah this is probably not usable but there's um a lot of anti-abortion anti-choice rhetoric around um the storage of and keeping of and using of cells from uh, aborted fetuses in the U.S. This is a huge thing here. Um, You're right. So there's a lot of accusations that um, Planned Parenthood, other clinics that provide abortive care, um, reproductive care, keep the tissue of the aborted fetus uh, and then use it for medical experimentation. This is mm. this is a thing that gets bandied about in <laughs> anti-choice rhetoric here all the time. Um, I once upon a time read a lot about that. Um, and I recall yeah. that there were it's not untrue that the clinics do keep the tissue for a certain amount of time and that there is something related to the like because of all the laws that govern uh tissue there's a yep. there has to be a certain amount of like keeping it and then destroying it in, a, in yep. a particular way in a certain way yes and because um yeah and so there's yes so then the fact that they can't simply deny the claims and say like we do not keep for any period of time right yeah because they have to be very careful in how they respond it just gets very mired Anyway, like I said, I don't know if that's <laughs> something we're going to keep in the podcast, but I uh, just want to toss into the mix that, like, it's, it, is, uh, it is a mired and, yeah. uh, and yeah. ugly realm of very, for the most part, poorly educated on the facts on both sides debate that yeah. is more about virtue signaling about whatever side of the case you know you're on than it is about the actual practice of keeping tissue or not and uh, yeah absolutely and i think like if if i'd consented to have tissue kept at any point and research was done on it and that saved lives or changed something or, or proved something yeah cool great super yeah would i like to be cut in from any money that's made off that absolutely do i think that's realistic maybe not mm -hmm. it i mean it depends if if it was like henrietta Lacks's cells right if it was if it was a cell line that changed the world then yes sure if it was if my tissue was one of ten thousands probably not mm -hmm. right um and and i think i think the idea of abortion right is a prickly one mm -hmm. because people have certain opinions about it when really at the point at which the abortion has happened, it is just a tissue sample. Yeah. So, Jeeps. Where where did we end up? 
Okay, what did we talk about today, Elise? Do you remember what we talked about yeah. early today? Because we, we've we've swerved and we've zigged and zagged. The only, the only people we were cutting off of each other <laughs> in yeah. our enthusiasm to talk over the top of one another. Yeah. <laughs> All right. So we talked about that. We talked about um, <laughs> we talked about uh, yeah the some of the history, some of the things that we know about medical research history that is less than good and that has resulted in changes to guidance and law mm-hmm. because mm-hmm. we don't want to try we're trying not to repeat it even though it still is happening or has been happening up until not that long ago um, and undoubtedly we will learn about more scandals and reasons that we should never have faith in the human race Again. yeah and I, I yeah and i also think right there's 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 always bad actors Right. Even if you had all of the rules in place and everybody tried to do the best thing all the time, all it takes is one hawk to mess up a whole colony full of doves. Yeah. And when I listed it at the beginning, right, the the different kind of causes that I think unpredictable freak accidents or human biology being weird is still going to happen. Yeah. So definitely. You've you've always got to in any in any kind of scientific endeavor, you've always got to be willing to change things. Evidence says X, therefore I must do something. And I think when, when the evidence says, oh, hey, this, this, this wasn't the good way of doing it, you change the way of doing it. Yes. Agreed. Okay. So we talked about uh, World War II Nazi yep. experiments. Uh, we, we kind of we refreshed briefly on elixir sulfonilamide. Yes. Raspberry flavor. Um, we talked about uh, Tuskegee, yeah. um, and then Lacks. we we talked about Henrietta Lacks, and then we uh, also talked about tissue, tissue. samples, mm. which fit, links directly to Henrietta Lacks, right? Because those are her cells taken. Yes. <sighs> so, I think that's where we'll leave it for today we've got many more examples of historical shit to to continue to wade through um that's quite enough for one day i think and and i think well i don't know let me ask you elise do you think from the examples that we've looked at that things changed for the better yeah i do i think that it's um like, you know, they say in psychology that and this is this is don't take this as hard and fat, true facts. Uh, <laughs> but the, the, the kind of armchair psychology says that you need like seven cases of a good thing to overwrite in your memory one case of a bad thing. And I think mm. that, you know, and that's talking about like interpersonal relationships, right? A fight with your spouse that, you know, or or a friend saying one mean thing to you is going to stand out in such a way that like you need seven instances of unreciprocated unprompted that person saying something nice to you before that mean thing that they said isn't the first thing you think about when you think about yeah. that person right yeah. and that's different than like oh we talked it out right <laughs> so anyway mm. but the reason I'm saying all of that is just that when it comes to these big historical uh, breaches that create yep hundreds of years long sometimes reaches of mistrust uh, for good reason and um you know 
whatever else in clinical practice and huge changes to international and national and just kind of intercollegiate, like people themselves making their own practices without the outside force of a government system, right? Changes like the Nuremberg Code or like the Harmonization Council, you know, like these things <laughs> happen. ICHGCP. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And then hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of studies are done where pe- people are properly given the chance to consent to the study and properly given the chance to opt out at any point if they decide the burden is too high for any reason, right? That they are given all of these things that these practices put into place and say, you the must protections. do this. protections. Protections. Yeah. And we don't spend all of our time po- doing a postmortem, doing what we call in in disaster management world an after action review, <laughs> right? On all those things because they're following the protocols and we can just sign off on them and say, no problems here, keep going. So in terms of do I think it's made a difference? Absolutely. Um, we... I wish that we didn't have to historically have had big breaches to create protections. And perhaps the best thing that we can do for ourselves now is start to anticipate how we can create protections that are not burdensome, but also mean that we aren't waiting for a big breach to happen before we implement better practice and better regulations. Now, that is a really great point that you've just ended on, because I think the the biggest thing for me in the, all of these examples and that we will continue to explore um, is, oh, dear, a terrible thing. We must fix it. Mm-hmm. Right. Whereas what I what what I see now uh, 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 and I think that the move in general is t- to try and stop those things from happening, to, to be a bit more proactive about what we're looking for and what our expectations are. Um, so I, I still don't think we're there, but I think ICHGCP is looking at implementing a much more risk-based approach, right? So if your study is simple, low risk, the level of scrutiny that it needs, it still has to meet the basic requirements, right? That all the rules and regs still apply, but the level of scrutiny that it needs is maybe less than a first in human wildly experimental study because the level of risk in each of those situations mm-hmm. is different. It's different. So that... That, I think, is a move in the right direction. On the other side of the coin, though, we know there is a vast wealth of evidence that drugs do not work for different population groups the same. Mm -hmm. But we don't research that, right? A lot of the research that we do is only done on, or predominantly done, on white people, uh, cisgender people, uh, men within certain age ranges, with certain disease conditions or not with certain disease conditions, I should say. Um, the fact that, you know, the, the COVID vaccines weren't researched on pregnant persons until very late in the game. Um, the fact that even now we have the data to show that equitable distribution of research in terms of race or geographic location or poverty doesn't apply. I think there's tons more we need to do about that because yeah. at the moment we're drawing conclusions about which drugs are safe Mm-hmm. from a subset of the population. Right. And, and that is all, that's always how it's going to be because you can't test every drug in every single person. But you can at least try to say, mm-hmm. oh, hey, this... And I keep coming back to this Alzheimer's drug because it really winds me up. 
this Alzheimer's drug that we're saying is going to be absolutely mind cha- mind changing. <laughs> this Alzheimer's drug that we're saying is going to be absolutely life changing. We've actually only tested it in predominantly white people, maybe two or three black patients, and um, we've only tested it in cisgender people, and we have only really tested it in men, despite the fact that this disease affects more women than men. Yep, that sucks. So. And I just kind of want to throw out there, too, is, like, part of that is, like, you know, when you're working with an IRB, an Institutional Review Board, if you want to test your... um, your anything if it doesn't even have to be medical research but especially for medical research or clinical um you have to and and you want to test it in what is designated by an IRB as a uh, vulnerable population an at-risk population whatever words you want to mm-hmm. use there's a lot of criticism of those terms out there that is valid and good um but if you want to do that, you have to go through a much higher burden of proof that there's a good reason to do it. And that, I think, is also important and necessary and a reaction to, oh, we've got a prison population. They can't say <laughs> yep. no. They can't run away from this, right? They can be coerced easily. So let's just use them. They're just patient my that- call. Patients that can't consent to themselves because of the definition of, uh, because of how we've defined what it means to be informed and to be able to consent. Yes. Right. So if if your um, if you if I couldn't consent for myself and you were my parent, guardian, carer, whoever, you could consent on my behalf. Right. Even if you knew that I didn't want to do the thing. Yeah. Or you knew that it wouldn't necessarily be beneficial for me. Yeah. And so children, pregnant people, people <clears throat> who are incarcerated. There's a, there are categories of people that IRBs must do a higher standard of investigation into a yep. study, a proposed study. And at that point, you can understand why some research, in order to not delay or stall the beginning of trials, simply say, we're going with too healthy, hard. white, cisgender men because nobody's It's too gonna... hard to go for everyone yep. else. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yep, absolutely. Anyway, it's just but a... that, I think is, that I think is where... An individual researcher can say, I'm only going to do it in this population of people, but ethics committees and regulators should be saying, fine, but you're not going to get your drug, device, yeah. whatever, approved off the back of that subset exactly. of data. And 80% of research in the UK is not commercially funded. It's funded by government, charities, etc. So people who are funding research should say, no, I'm not actually going to pay you to do that. And like the NIHR, yeah. the National Institute for Health Research in the UK, are have already in place some guidelines, and I think they're looking to to improve them because it's a journey, right? We're not we're not going to get this right first time out the gate to make sure that it, exactly what you said, right? It's the necessary scrutiny isn't acting as a barrier; it's yes. acting as a motivation mm-hmm. to say yes. We know that there may be hoops that we need to jump through here, but they are in place for good reason, yeah. and we're going to give you the tools to help you jump through those hoops, but we're also not going to give you the funding if you're not willing to do it when you should. That's it. Exactly. That's it. Exactly. It has to be paired with this. Like this is what good practice is. Yeah. It includes a diverse sample population and diverse is defined in this way. And yes, that does mean you're going to have to prove that you're not doing undue harm to people Mm -hmm. based on which marginalized category or at risk so to speak category they fall into yeah like you who you're picking and who you're not yeah yeah 
Absolutely. Great. Okay. So uh, I think that's it for us today. Unless you have any questions, Elise. No. No questions. Cool. So we hope you enjoyed listening to our podcast. Um, and go and have a cup of tea or beverage of choice and a biscuit because that was a bit of a ride. Um, if you have any questions or would like to get in touch with us, you can email us at clinical.research.intro at gmail.com. Please do subscribe so you get the next episode automatically. Of course, please rate and review. Um, you can also check out the Clinical Research 101 Instagram page. That's at clinical.research.intro on Instagram. Our website also exists. Uh, thank you, Elise. Uh, intro to clinicalresearch.podbean.com. And on there, you should be able to find transcripts, other information, including uh, credit to our amazing friend, Sam Winnie, um, for letting us use their incredible music for our intro and outro. So a big thank you to Sam. Um, they are excellent. So that's uh, thanks and goodbye from me, Debbie. Say goodbye, Elise. Goodbye, Elise.